Oh, this is Baron Ron Heron for AM 1290. Stay tuned. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Christzell and Diane Duver and I, your hosts every week right here on AM1290, repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and Amadecito's Upper Village, and Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Happy Monday, Neil. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Happy Monday to you. Uh, I didn't see you exercising on the ocean this morning. I was not there at the crack of dawn, but I did go I have, I did go to the beach this morning and work out. I just wasn't there at 5.45. What time did you go? Like nine. Oh, do you think people out there are interested in what time? In my workout routine? No. Mm -hmm. I I noticed because you said that you must've done your run this morning. Good for you. Oh, yes. So um, who's our guest? So we are thrilled to have with us my personal friend and my husband's former business partner, Jason Spivak. He's the co-founder and managing partner of, at Entrada Ventures. He has a long list of career accolades. Um, I'll just mention a few in the introduction and I'll, I'll sprinkle them in throughout the uh, interview, but he has been involved in Appeal. He was a founder of Invoca. He, was al- he also brought CallWave, another local company, public. Um, and that's just what he's done here in the Santa Barbara area. So Jason, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you and we look forward to hearing from you. Great. Thanks, Diane. So today gold hit um, a, a new high. And um, this weekend, uh, there was an article by Jason Swag in the Wall Street Journal entitled A Golden Rule from a Golden Fool. And it, it begins by saying that five years ago, he had predicted that the price of gold would, uh, as he called it, gold is a pet rock and the price would drop. And he admitted that the price has gone up over 70% uh, since he made that prediction. So he went back and took a look at some of the factors that affect the price of gold. And, and you know, there's obviously a lot of money chasing gold these days based on the price of the stock. And what was so interesting about his research is that the rationale for buying gold continues to change. Uh, first, it was considered, uh, obviously, we don't have high inflation now. And in fact, if you look at the inflation-adjusted inc- uh, value of gold over the last 30 years, it actually has done poorly versus inflation. So now, people are saying, since it's not a head against inflation, that it is um, benefiting from the fact that with returns so low for everything else, the whole idea of holding gold and not making interest doesn't seem to be much of a problem. Uh, And um, uh, therefore, the opportunity cost of investing in gold is um, not exactly uh, going to uh, be uh, going to hurt you. Uh, At the same time, 
you know, people have always said it's a hedge against the economy. Well, you know, right now, uh, the stock market is sitting an all-time high. So again, it is in the sense gold shouldn't be hitting an all-time high along along with it. Um, you know, my own view is that the reason one of the reasons it's going up is because the dollar is predicted to go down, and gold is priced in uh, in dollars, and so it becomes cheaper for foreign investors to buy gold. But the, the the thing that's interesting about this article is that it's an asset that an asset that's going up in value, and as the uh, world changes, people are rationalizing its increase with um, a, a different set of causes where you would think that, you know, it's, that would be sort of, you know, inconsistent using the, changing the world to, to meet the, the reality of what this asset's doing. And the irony of many of those gold funds is they don't, they're not even held with gold backing them. It's some sort of futures and derivatives product that uses gold. And so if you are one of those people that are buying gold, you want to make sure that your asset, that your um, fund that you're buying is indeed backed by bars of gold in a vault somewhere. Yeah, most or else you're don't. not you're not getting the the even you're not even getting the the reason why you're buying it. Uh, by the way, the next article is sort of inter interesting. It's it, it, and it really is related to this, even though the headline is sort of weird. It's Zimbabwe. Uh, shuts down its stock exchange as currency deteriorates. And um, you say, what does that have to do with anything? You know, Zimbabwe is almost a failed state to begin with. Well, the reason it turns out is that because inflation is so out of control in Zimbabwe, uh, it's, uh, the, the value of, um, uh, of the stock market is up 677%. And the reason for that is that people want to get out of the Zimbabwe whatever the currency is called. Um, and there's no other hard asset for most people to buy. To, uh, when Obviously, when a currency is, is deteriorating, you want to get out of that currency. And the easiest, uh, quote unquote, hard asset in Zimbabwe has been the stock market. So the stock market's out of control going up as people, any, everybody is putting money in the stock market in order to get out of the, their currency, which I think is sort of interesting. Um, obviously, you don't uh, just staring just staring at me through Zoom. But that's okay. um, it was interesting. I'm relevant. <laughs> I'm not sure, but interesting. Um, pandemic hit stocks exit European indexes. This was in the Wall Street Journal also, and it uh, is about several companies badly hit by the pandemic are set to be ejected from blue chip stock indexes in Europe, a demotion that will prompt some fund managers to sell billions of dollars of investments. And, you know, this is another example of, you know, using indices where uh, when things are not going well, you get uh, the risk that that uh, stock will be eliminated from uh, that index. And then everybody that is managing uh, an ETF, everyone who's managing an index fund is going to be forced to sell, which further exacerbates the decline. By the way, this works the other way too. And that's why people are speculating about when or, or if Tesla is going to be put into an index, because that would give it a pop as every index has to go out and buy Tesla. And, it, and it actually, you know, when you say it, it sounds like it's, it's minor, but in fact, it has huge impacts to shareholders of those funds, as well as those company shareholders. You get a big boost when it's added, and it just further makes it even more dismal when it's going down and kicked out. 
Uh, this is an interesting article, again, from Jason Swig, and it's called The Cost of Investing with the Upper Crust. And basically, it's, it's sort of a, a riff on uh, what's wrong with hedge funds. And he's not focusing that much on performance. He's talking about actual cost. And he said, according to new research, um, uh, from 1995 through 2016, hedge fund investors shelled, at, shelter, shelled out an average of 3.44% annually in management and incentive fees. Uh, the study found that investors earned net returns of only 1.96% annually, meaning that they paid $1.76 in costs for every dollar they got to keep. Uh, between 1995 and 2008, the hedge funds in this study produced cumulative losses before expenses, but still generated almost $52 billion in performance payments to their managers. So this is another critique of hedge funds that have not performed nearly as well as people expected as we get more and more hedge funds. Uh, well, that's exactly it, Neil. You have a, a saturation in the market of hedge funds, already difficult business to ex excel in. And it's, a, it's very costly to be a part of it. You know, usually it's a two, a two and 10 or two and 20 type of fee structure where you're paying 2%, whether it goes up and down, up or down and you're, and the fund is sharing in 10 to 20% of the profits. And so it became really a buzzword when the large endowments started using hedge, fund, hedge funds. But really, it's, it's, it's an instrument that's an expensive way to get access. And if it works, yeah, it's great. But you're getting only 80% of the pop, less than actually. And on top of that, you're also having, nowadays, you have to pick the hedge fund very carefully to find ones that can actually differentiate themselves and find companies to invest in. There are so many hedge funds and so few few companies to, that are actually going to make something of themselves. Yeah, it's like you know, looking at Major League Baseball and uh, looking at the statistics if they added another ten or fifteen thousand teams, the quality of play right. would be a little bit less than before. Who knows? Now, Maybe we could even be players <laughs> at that rate. Well, right now they're looking for anyone who's not sick. Uh, they may cancel the season. Is what is in the current news because the Marlins half their team tested positive. I know, I saw uh, that. So the, the, I think you'll like the title of the final, our final article today, and it's entitled Independent Wealth Advisors Stand Out. And um, it begins by saying trading commissions are down to zero, so interest so are interest rates, but wealth management industry has, some, has something to help, help offset these pressures. Um, it's a newfangled technology called human beings. And <laughs> Goldman Sachs' latest move to buy the business of a large um, uh, independent uh, registered investment advisor company, uh, RIA, type company uh, is, is, is similar to other uh, major companies buying uh, advisors uh, because uh, they found that despite all the new technological advances and you know the, the Robin Hood investors, people like to have a financial advisor and that uh, Goldman and other firms have found it's actually good to have somebody that the client really thinks is helping them just simply beyond stock picking. And so RIAs have, have, have grown faster, done much better than the traditional bankers like at, uh, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America. So congratulations, well, you picked the right career. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. I, I love that you know, confirmation right. of, of, of my life's work. You know, part of it is, is I think as there becomes more and more information available, 
people often say, well, gosh, you know, in the early 2000s, there'll be no need to have a financial advisor. Everybody will have access to all the information. But really, when you're, make, when you're dealing with people's life savings and, and their most important decisions that they're going to make in their life, it's important to have another human interaction, somebody to bounce it off, think through the, think through the issues and, and come up with solutions and options. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290. Or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Jason Spivak, um, co-founder and managing partner at Untrada Ventures with us today. And so Jason Tell us a little bit about your history. How did you get involved in the world of finance? Um, I know you got your MBA from Northwestern, and obviously, you know, you you discovered the beauty of Santa Barbara early on and went to UCSB. But what what really drew you to finance and UCSB? And tell us a little bit about your beginnings. Uh, thanks, Diane. Uh, it's a good question. I'll try and be as brief with that one as I can. Uh, Undergrad here at UCSB, actually my wife and I met the norms here freshman year back in 87. So I don't have to tell her what a badass I used to be, you know, she was there. Um, 
moved up to the Bay Area after that, and after kind of a series of odd jobs, started getting involved a little bit more in technology early. And having had the chance to go through a couple of IPOs during some of Silicon Valley's heyday, it became increasingly clear to me that the people that were succeeding as leaders didn't just understand the technology and the products and the customers, but there was a language of money and finance that I just didn't have in my background. So ended up deciding to go to graduate school at Northwestern out in Chicago to try and get that in my toolbox. And what's interesting, I can tell you that when I, when I entered business school, and this is embarrassing, so I hope you know, nobody's listening out there, but uh, when I entered business school at age of about 26 or something, 26, 27, I honestly could not have confidently told you the difference between an income statement and a cash flow statement. And I'm, I'm really not kidding. And so uh, two-year education, met some great people, ended up getting recruited into investment banking, uh, doing uh, tech, M&A, mergers and acquisitions, straight out of business school. And within five years, six years of graduating from Northwestern, I was a public company CFO, which was the source of uh, a lot of good jokes from the guys in my financial decisions group back in school. <laughs> and, and so what's interesting about that is, so, you, so the fact that you were a public company CFO, kind of out of the gate, you've really gotten to see the evolution of all the rules and regulations that, that public companies now face versus a few years back. Yes, and, and you and I have had a lot of discussions around this over the years, and we both had front row seats to uh, the journey that CallWave went through. You know, by the time I had arrived there, I had the chance to be a small part of two other IPOs, one fairly large with Nextel Communications in 92, and then with Farallon Computing in 96, both of those up in the Bay Area. But the, the process at CallWave was really the first opportunity I had to try to sort of run that IPO process from start to finish with banker selection, underwriters, printers, attorneys, all the drafting. Uh, and it was actually, that was the third quarter of 2004. And what had happened just then was the implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley in the second quarter of 2004, which is a very restrictive set of regulations for public companies. And it created the potential for personal liability for the executive leadership teams in the event of misrepresentation, fraud, et cetera. So there were very few companies that were preparing to go public at that point in time in the new landscape. And that quarter, the third quarter of 04, when we took CallWave public, there were actually just four tech IPOs that quarter, uh, Google, uh, Salesforce.com, a company called Right Now Technologies, and CallWave. So it was, it was a new landscape. I mean, after we took that company public, my phone rang off the hook from venture capital firms looking for CFO with Sarbanes-Oxley experience to take some of their companies public. So it was a, it was a really interesting time, actually. A good learning experience, for sure. Now, so at, at the, once you left um, CallWave, you got recruited up to the Bay Area, you went back to the Bay Area. What brought you back to Santa Barbara? Well, we kind of had a foot in each and our original move to Santa Barbara was less about, hey, there's this great Silicon Beach opportunity that was part of it. We loved it here. We just had our first kid. Uh, and part of it was my wife's dad was sick at the time in Southern California and she was flying back and forth with an infant nearly weekly and 
we said, hey, that's that's not right. Let's consider moving down there. We didn't want LA or San Diego, and we said, hey, maybe we can make a go in Santa Barbara. It's not the sleepy little town it was when we were there 10 years ago. Uh, and it was actually the beginnings of uh, early stage tech development here, and also a lot of investment in material science and in defense, right? A, a lot of the trickle down from the Reagan administration's deployment of capital here for the strategic defense initiative in the mid eighties led to the creation and growth of a lot of big and interesting defense and materials companies. So we thought, Hey, we'll give it a go. Uh, we came down here. I actually you know, came to UCSB with no job and no plan and attended uh, what at the time was called SEAM, the center for entrepreneurship and engineering management led by Tim Schwartz back when, which was sort of the early precursor to what's now the technology management program where I get to teach with some great people. And I just went to the business plan competition and met folks there that led to my deciding to get involved with CallWave early on. Uh, but, you know, we, we took CallWave public and felt like, okay, our adventure in Santa Barbara is probably done, right? Let's go back to you know, the real world where all the activity is. And we, you know, still had a house in the Bay Area. And so we moved back up when the kids were basically six, four and two almost. And we got up and got settled in our dream house. And uh, within a few months, my wife and I could both tell that neither of us were feeling it up there anymore and all of our social stuff. And the kids wanted to be down in Santa Barbara for birthday parties and Surprisingly, most of my business activity was now Santa Barbara centered and no longer Silicon Valley. And I had a path toward partnership, one of the leading Silicon Valley venture capital firms and great team over there. And when we decided not to do that, um, we discussed it and said, hey, I, we think we were happier in Santa Barbara. So let's just go do it there for the rest of our lives. So it was about a nine month adventure back up to the Bay Area basically. And we learned a ton and came back here and, and uh, we're here forever. That's great. And so speaking of the technology management um, program out at UCSB, what classes do you teach? So currently just one, uh, the TMP course, TMP 149, which I think the name of the class is the market validated business model or the market validated startup is basically the startups class. And we have student teams, uh, undergraduate and graduate teams, sometimes with faculty advisors already in place that form around a particular business opportunity or a technology sometimes. And they come interview with us in the fall to be selected to take the class winter quarter. So we, out of the dozens of teams that apply every year, we take a maximum of 10. And I'm fortunate to have a volunteer teaching team with me, which is a group of successful entrepreneurs, CEOs, venture capital investors that kind of rotate through the class each year. And we take those teams through the process of identifying their market opportunity and going through a pretty rigorous market validation or sometimes invalidation process prior. <laughs> Which, to you know, that's just as important, the invalidation versus the validation. You know, it's better to find out sooner as opposed to later that it's not going to work. I would not say this to my kids, but the reality is that most ideas suck. And so it's important to learn <laughs> that early. So we take them through that process and then feed those teams into the new venture competition. And with that, we've seen you know now multiple billion dollar plus valuations come out of that program. And so uh, we, as a group of angel investors, eventually put together Entrada Ventures as a vehicle for investing in a lot of the great early stage technology that's coming out of this region, 
And most of that, one way or the other, has its roots at UCSB. Well, I have an idea. It's time for a break. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. All of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. The Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation has a special event coming up Saturday, August the 1st. It's their paella picnic. Here's Kirsten Stewart. It's on August 1st at the Village Properties parking lot. The paella is by SB Paella Catering. You can pick up your paella for four in a bag. And in the bag is a bottle of wine and dessert and a gift. And then hopefully take your bag of paella to the beach or to the park or even to your own backyard and enjoy it. Also, you may participate in our opportunity drawing that has some fantastic prizes. You may also participate in our giving tree and make a general donation in honor of someone that you love. You may also participate in a wine poll, which is super exciting. And you can go to our website at teddybearcancerfoundation.org slash events. To sign up for the Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation's IAA Picnic coming up Saturday, August the 1st, go to teddybearcancerfoundation.org slash events. In this season of hope, you can do something extraordinary. Join your neighbors and the American Red Cross and help save the day. When the next disaster strikes, when a neighbor's house burns down, if someone needs life-saving blood or the comfort of a helping hand, hope. Please visit sbredcross.org to donate to your American Red Cross Santa Barbara County chapter today. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And so, Jason, we were talking before the break about the entrepreneurs coming out of the UCSB um, management, technological management program that you teach at. Is that really what seeded the idea for Entrada Ventures in that you know, really on Trata, it, it looks as if you're targeting that early startup, you know, series A funding type of scenario. Is, is that kind of where you saw that need in the Central Coast? It is. And there's been actually very active angel investment here in town for a long time. There's been, there's been very limited institutional capital, so to speak, meaning organized capital. Um, there have been a few here over the years. Um, uh, NGen and IGSB and Bertelsmann was here for a while, but for the most part, there's been a really active angel base here. A uh, bunch of folks that you know. I mean, you know, John Patodi, for example, has built the Sandbar Angel Alliance to formalize that process here and has done a great job with that. It's been angel capital that's been funding the deals here over the years. And it was a couple of years back that uh, we were sitting around with a couple of folks, Eric Kanowski and and um, and Brian Coriat, and then Alex Fong and 
talking about, hey, we each are putting X hundred thousand a year into startups, right? Most of that's coming one way or the other from the UCSB community. What if we each just took a few years worth of money, threw it in a bucket, named it, and put ourselves in a position to be able to go out and not just invest, but be able to source and lead deals and help determine the terms, evaluation, et cetera. And so the concept of Entrada was born from that. And it was initially actually just our own money. We were just doing it like a family office. And then as word spread around to some of our friends, uh, we invited a few folks in and went from 10 million to 15 to 20. We decided to cap it there. But as a result, most of the LPs or the investors, the limited partners in Entrada are a bit of a who's who of a lot of the tech company CEOs and senior executives here on the Central Coast from um, many of the companies that, that you've heard of here. Some prefer anonymity, but for the most part, nearly all of the leading executives of the top tech companies are investors in Entrada. And so what we're able to do is not just say, hey, this is an interesting opportunity. We like the team. We like the market. We like the technology. We're going to go ahead and negotiate the terms to put a million or two into this company. We also then turn to our limited partners, our investors, and say, here's what we're doing. Here's why we like it. If you'd like to invest directly beyond the amount that you've participated in through the fund already, you're welcome to join us here. And so it's really, in my view, kind of a uh, an ante, a seat at the table for all these folks who would like to be investing in and learning about interesting companies, but don't have the time or the deal flow or the wherewithal to do that. So our goal with Entrada was really for, for ourselves and for all the folks around us who understand how to build technology companies to create opportunity without obligation. And that's really what it's been. We've been having a great time with it. How have you found uh, the success rate? Uh, you know, is it, is it still one in a hundred? Uh, what is the, 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 the statistic that that's a really good question, Neil, and it depends a lot on what the goals are that you set out for yourselves as a fund. So in our case, we are unique as a partnership in that uh, I think all of our partners, certainly most, have had the opportunity to create or be a part of creating at least 100x return as an operator and also 100x return as an investor. And so we have a lot of experience kind of on, on both sides of that table to borrow a phrase from my friend, Mark. And uh, with that, we've got a pretty mature and experienced perspective on early stage company building. None of us take any salaries or take any management fees or anything from the fund at all, which is one of the things that makes Entrada unique. But uh, I've been really fortunate as an investor and as an operator to not really have had uh, any of those big losses yet. You know. Knock on wood here, no no unhappy investors so far. I think I've probably been a part of, if you count this last round of the appeal, it kind of blows it out a bit, but probably been a part of raising a 600 million plus in investor equity in my career so far and, uh, and no unhappy investors yet. So our approach to it is not the, the spray and pray or the one home run out of 10 or out of 100. Uh, as we take on an investment opportunity, we take a lot of responsibility for helping to lead that company through to its next round of capital as well. And our hope and expectation and plan is that every one of the companies that we invest in and take a role with will ultimately be successful. And, and you know, as, as surprising as it sounds, that's, that's been the, the track record so far. Uh, one interesting data point, which may be interesting for folks trying to understand how 
the tech community here in Santa Barbara has evolved. As we were beginning to pull together some materials for Entrada last fall, and I think I, I shared some of this with you guys earlier uh, by email, just Santa Barbara, just software companies, over $20 billion in realized shareholder exit value in the last 20 years here. And that's just in Santa Barbara. So there's a tremendous amount of activity here. And folks are always so surprised to learn how many tech companies are actually based here in Santa Barbara. So our, our goal is to help every company we invest in be successful. And, and we've got you know kind of a rule of thumb here that, you know, I can't swear on the show, so I, I won't. But uh, from our perspective, when we're making an investment decision, if it's not F yeah, that we want to do this, then it's no. Because we're going to commit years of our time and our relationships and our leverage and our capital to helping these companies succeed. And so that's, that's also what makes it fun for us as investors and, and partners and board members, because we're working on stuff that we really love and want to learn about. And so when, you, when you're looking at your portfolio companies, how are you sourcing new ideas? I know that your fund is an invite only. So if we have some listeners out there who have um, a new technology startup company and they think, wow, you would be a great fit for me, I, they can't just contact you. But how do you source your, your, your deals? That's a great question. So we are each out proactively listening and exploring, and we're we're operating in circles where stuff like this comes up. I spend a lot of time at UCSB. I'll walk the halls in engineering and just push lab doors open and ask the faculty in there what they're working on. Uh, but for the most part, like most things in life, it's relationship driven, right? If somebody wants to reach us to have a, a capital conversation, ideally they're going to use their entrepreneurial skills to find a shared contact, a shared friend that can introduce them in. Things that just come in over the transom, frankly, have a very low likelihood of getting funded anywhere. And it's part of the screening process. But one of the things that we do, because we do want to make early stage capital more accessible for this community, is that we host uh, sort of meet with a VC office hours uh, in several locations on a regular basis. So we are officing at Kiva Cowork on State Street and with that, we hold monthly office hours where any Kiva members can schedule a half hour with some of our partners just to talk capital. It's not a pitch necessarily. It's like, hey, this is my business. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm thinking about. What are the right ways to think about capitalizing this as I go forward? So we hold regular office hours there as well as at UCSB and also at Cal Poly up in San Luis Obispo. So with UCSB, I know that many of the companies that come out of UCSB, isn't there some sort of... Um if a patent is is created, it's partially the universities, partially partially the entrepreneurs. Where does that fit in, and have you run into that? Is, does that does that pose a problem for sure, um, venture sure. money? You run into it all the time, right? And and the university has a goal of creating revenue from those technologies that benefit ultimately the universities and the the entrepreneurs, the inventors, and faculty members. In short, if you use university resources to create your technology then it's going to be owned by the university with royalties being paid to the inventor and the inventor faculty member has sort of first right uh, to license, so to speak. They're gonna give the technology transfer office, uh, Cheryl and her crew will give preferential treatment to the inventor if they want to commercialize their technology. If they just wanna keep on working at the university and they've, they've developed something really interesting, then the, the tech office reaches out to uh, corporate partners to see where the technology might find a home that generates royalty revenue, which then goes to the university and the inventor. 
But there are cases where folks have, have developed technology and either not use the UC resources or they've paid to use them, in which case they own their technology. And so we see lots of both. And uh, UCSB in particular has been pretty good about working with corporate partners. So it is not a deal killer from an investor perspective if the technology is owned by the university and licensed to the company. You just need a lot of clarity on what those licensing terms are and make sure that they're realistic and scalable and aren't going to scare off future rounds of investors. You're listening to Money Talk on the Santa Barbara News Press radio station, and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. If you have trouble handling your anger, get help. If someone you love is hurting or scaring you, get help. There is a full-service domestic violence agency in Santa Barbara County, which offers emergency shelter, counseling, transitional housing, anger management, and teen outreach programs. Its name is Domestic Violence Solutions for Santa Barbara County. Call their 24-hour helpline at 964-5245. Domestic Violence Solutions for Santa Barbara County, putting an end to domestic violence. Did you know that domestic violence sends more than 500 women and children to emergency shelters every year? There is a place where all family members affected by domestic violence can get help. Domestic Violence Solutions for Santa Barbara County, with four 24-hour phone lines to help. In Santa Barbara, call 964-5245. In Santa Maria, call 925-2160. In Lompoc, call 736-0965. And in Santa Inez, call 686-4390. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about. So, Jason, we were talking before about, um, you know, you, you held office hours. So for, for startup companies looking for capital, what process do you think is the best that they should um, ensue t- to actually find capital? What would you recommend? So it's a great question, and there's a lot of different answers to how do you capitalize an early stage business. Uh, There are risks and rewards associated with, say, taking friends and family money. Uh, There are risks and rewards with taking uh, venture capital money, right? Uh, And the same thing with angel money. First, you should get as far as you can on the resources that you have before taking in outside capital, because the further along you are in terms of developing your market opportunity and ultimately your your solution, your technology, 
the better terms and valuation you're going to get when you begin to talk with investors. Now, for someone that has a great idea and either has no money or is out of money and you need some to continue, then you've got some options there. You've got, you can borrow, right? A lot of the greatest companies out there were started on credit cards, including Appeal Sciences. And uh, you can also get friends and family. You can go to the folks around you who know you and trust you and they'll bet on you because you're you. That's not necessarily the most validating capital. And it's sometimes hard for that to get followed on by institutional investment. Or you can go talk to very early stage VCs like Entrada. There aren't too many here in the region because it takes a pretty strong stomach and uh, a lot of um, vision and enthusiasm to invest at that kind of zero to one stage. It happens to be what I enjoy the most as do my partners in Entrada, so a pretty unique group that we just love that stage of bringing a company into existence, helping to align great people, money, technology, resources around a great market opportunity and going from the, hey, maybe we should do this to, hey, we're doing this, right? And so that's how each company started. I mean, Diane's husband, Rob, and I basically started Invoca sitting at Starbucks on the corner of State and Coda and realizing the idea was too good not to do. And you fast forward today to hundreds of employees and you know tens of millions in revenue and and great investors behind it and a huge market. And but it all starts with someone making the decision to make that their priority and say go. And that's the part we just really enjoy. So they should contact us, right? Ideally through someone. Is, is besides money, the other part of the equation is help. Um, and you know you're you know, you're a college senior and you have a great idea, but you, you know, you're clueless about how business works. So, uh, you know, a lot of the big VCs, you know, uh, have departments where there's an expert in fast food companies and there's an expert in, you know, iPhone apps. I mean, everyone. And so you can provide the, uh, the entrepreneur with not just money, but help. Is that something you can different, you can do as a small company? It is. And because there are only seven of us as partners, right? And we're all doing it kind of as a labor of love. Obviously, we want to make generate great returns for ourselves and our investors at the end of the day, but we don't pay ourselves anything to do this. And we are among the biggest investors in our own fund, right? There are just seven of us. And so we each have different areas of expertise. And for Entrada to be able to move forward with an investment, it really needs to be in one or more of our wheelhouse, and we have to have a passion around that and say, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and work hard and be a part of this team for the next three, five, seven years and use my resources, my experience, my connections to help these folks open doors, build teams, raise capital, sign customers. When we lead a seed round, a series seed round for a company, we're really committing to helping take that company through its next round of of tier one venture-led series A. And the reality is, if you're growing a company based on investor capital in either the go right or the go wrong scenario, you're gonna need to be out there raising more money. And so we're committing ourselves as a team, not just to getting this round done and bringing in high quality investors and support for the companies, but when we come on board, we're committing to getting the next round done with the company as well. Of the seven, so, of the seven partners, what is your particular niche? Do you, could you, is there one particular area? Uh, seven of us collectively. No, no you just you. Yeah, me. But, uh, I, I kind of have the leftover job. I collect 
bits and pieces of information and insight from all over the place and uh, try and bring good people together around opportunities and pretty good at bringing the money to go with that. Uh, fortunately, though, we have a handful of partners, uh, Greg and Alex, who are both smart PhDs and understand photonics and networking and a broad range of technologies that I would not otherwise be able to confidently invest in. Uh, Eric really understands software front and back as well as uh, a, you probably wouldn't want to admit it, but a, a growing resume in med tech and med devices. I've had the chance to learn a great deal about agricultural technology and food science over the last several years. Um, and then we're fortunate to also have Brian and Julie and Taylor, who have really have deep understandings of both software, performance marketing, and media business models as well. So it's it's really got to be in someone's wheelhouse for us to for it to really take hold with us as an investment opportunity. So now that you've been on both sides of the table as an investor now, and before you were the entrepreneur raising money and raising capital, you know you were you were on the other side of the table. What experience, because I, I find all too often that the VCs really lose sight of what it was like to actually raise the money. And it, I think you actually have cut, brought this together in such a, such a way that you remember what it's like to raise money and you're, you're good at it. And so I think that that's probably your number one thing that you bring to the table, if I can be so bold as to tell you what your, your niche is, is to really help people in that next round. I, I think that's fair. And I was just joking with James Rogers at Appeal about that because you know, I've been on the board there for six plus years, I think, and had stepped into an operating role with James and the team for a couple of years there. And as I stepped out of that so that I can free up time to actually launch Entrada, which is what I'd wanted to do next, the joke was, hey, man, I'll, I'll be over here in the closet, right? Come dust me off when it's time to raise money again. And um, so that's something I've gotten comfortable with having what, what is a narrow but hopefully valuable skill set. And like my transition out of Invoca, for example, when it was time for us to bring in that next stage of CEO, really helped me realize the things that I enjoy and I'm good at and has let me focus my sort of business time on just those things that I enjoy and feel like I'm able to create value and help other folks with and get comfortable not being good at the other stuff. Um, but I, I heard a question there, which was kind of what's the learning from having been on the side of raising money and mm -hmm. kind of what's the guidance to people raising money. Uh, if I could roll back the clock, I would have liked to have understood earlier in my career that capital needs labor as much as labor needs capital. I, I knew from early on that labor needed capital to succeed. I was, you know, I wanted to play bingo once with my grandfather when I was about eight years old and he said, Great, I'll, I'll buy the card and you work the little plastic chips, right? I'll, I'll be the capital, you be the labor. So I always understood that, but it was not until much later that I realized that the scarce commodity in this early stage tech venture equation is not the money. There's literally trillions of dollars sitting there in venture funds, private equity funds and sovereign wealth funds all out there just trying to beat inflation. It can only make money when a committed, smart, thoughtful entrepreneur that's willing to take a tremendous amount of career risk for themselves and for the, the people around them and raise capital and go build this, they can only make money when that labor shows up. And that that labor, that, you know, that that Alex Fong, that James Rogers, that Jenny Du, right? That is the scarce commodity in the equation. If you're able to go into those capital conversations politely as a buyer instead of a seller, 
you're going to have a lot more success in those conversations, I think. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. All of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the KellyMarshTeam.com or call Call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Come on, people. Think about it. It's time to pay it. Attention. Mortgage industry is not rocket science. Your guide to the information you can use to choose the best answers to your real estate financing questions. Join me Tuesdays at 2 p.m., 10 p.m., and Sundays at noon. Your guy in the mortgage industry, Guy Rivera. Tune in to 1290 AM, Santa Barbara News Press Radio Station. For 16 years on State and Islay. I'm Guy Rivera, your guy in the mortgage industry. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial guidance. So Jason, tell us a little bit about Appeal Sciences. It's it's a pretty exciting um, technology that was started out of UCSB, kind of fits fits in the wheelhouse of, of what's going on in technology here in Santa Barbara. And tell us your... Um, your interaction and involvement with it and where they're going and what's, ha- what's happening over there. Sure. Uh, I'll keep it brief here, but I think appeal really represents all that is possible with the technology investing and technology development here in Santa Barbara. And it speaks volumes to the strength of the programs at UCSB, including what is now the number one ranked material sciences program in the world. So um, appeal sciences was founded by James Rogers uh, and, and also with uh, Luis Perez and Jenny Dew about eight years ago, I want to say. And they went through the new venture competition and uh, won first place back then and used some of that money to incorporate and get the company off the ground that James was already building out of his IV apartment. Uh, and so what Appeal does in short is about the most incredible thing I, I have really ever seen in my life. And I've been very fortunate to have a front row seat uh, with with James and Jenny and Lou and Bill and Jordan and, and, and Michael and the team. And so um, 
in short, what Appeal does, for those who don't know, is the company has developed a method of extracting a very particular set of molecules, fatty acids, from food, from food waste, right? The skins of fruits and vegetables, the stuff that gets left behind in the processing plant, the grape skins, tomato skins, et cetera. And from that, they extract these molecules, mix them together in certain combinations that when you apply it to a surface, right, an avocado, a cherry, a mango, whatever, it dries to form this perfectly uniform barrier that slows the rate at which oxygen gets in and also the rate at which H2O gets out, the things that cause food to spoil, but does not impede the normal ripening processes. So each formulation is very specifically tuned to that surface type, that produce type. And as a result, the company is able to triple to 5x the shelf life of nearly every kind of produce without refrigeration. And it's incredibly impactful what it can do for the world when you think about that, not just in terms of time, but geographic distance that produce can travel without going bad. And the extent to which we can now feed the world that much more efficiently. And it works and it's incredible and it's scaling globally now. We're up to, I think, 300 something employees. We're, we're operating in a dozen plus countries. And with this latest round, uh, the Series D Capital, uh, led by GIC partners, the company has hundreds of millions in the bank to go deploy globally. And it's just, it's just incredible. The, the does, this get apply, does this get applied to the fruit itself or is it a covering ob above it? It gets, it gets applied to the food itself during the packing and, and sorting process, essentially. And it's entirely from food. It's invisible, colorless, odorless, tasteless. You can't detect it. And Jason, thank you so much. Food. It's really fascinating. Thank you for being here. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Terrific. It's three o'clock. This is Andrew.